Welcome to Engaging Culture, a podcast presented by Bridgeway Christian Church. I'm Brian Kylie. On this episode, Pastor Lance Hahn and I are joined by Doug Locke, a marriage and family therapist who serves as the Addiction Studies Coordinator at Western Seminary. We'll talk about a range of issues related to addiction and recovery and how churches and individuals can better come alongside those who are struggling with addiction. All of that and more on this episode of Engaging Culture. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Engaging Culture podcast. Pastor Brian here with you, along with Pastor Lance Hahn. Lance? Yep, I am actually here this time. You are here this time. Yes, I was gone a couple episodes. I don't know if anybody even recognized that. You were? You were gone last episode. But now I'm back again, and I'm I'm pretty excited about talking about the topic we have today, and specifically getting a chance to retouch base with our guest. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I am excited about that as well. Uh, Happy to join our guest, Doug Locke. Doug, thank you for being with us. Appreciate the time. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, so you are the uh, Addiction Studies Coordinator at Western Seminary. Yes, I am. And how long have you been doing that? I've been doing that for about three and a half years, although I've been running this program or another program and teaching folks how to be addictions counselors for about seven or eight. Okay, so you've been at this at this for a while. Tell us a little bit more uh, as we get into this, uh, your background in sort of the field of addiction studies and even your interest in the field to, to begin with. Give us sure. a little bit of that background. No, no problem. You know, I was just kind of walking down a dusty road, minding my own business, and it kind of caught me by surprise. I've always been uh, God has called me to community community mental health community outreach and um, have been involved both in private practice and in church settings helping those with addictions from sexual addiction to chemical issues and it just kind of enfolded me that you know there's not somebody else and so it's like Abram okay I'll go um, mm-hmm. and here I am um, you know 10 12 15 years later of working with addictions and being able to run this program yeah, that's great. Now, it's interesting to me at a, at a seminary level that Western, who is, it has, has a campus here locally, here in here here in the Sacramento area, alma mater. Just saying. That's right. Uh, they, uh, distinguished, <laughs> Have my degree from there. Distinguished alumnus right here. Lance Hahn. How long did that degree take you again? I don't want to talk about it, Brian. Can we hey, move on, You know please? what? You completed the degree. So that's all yes, that matters. I did. With distinction. Many distinctions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so Western offers... An addiction study certificate, right? So it's yes. it's a it's a, a a a battery of classes you can take to get this. Just that 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 level of attention is given to the issue of addiction is interesting to me. Can you just tell us what what led to Western starting the program? Because for them to devote that amount of resource, I mean, th- yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. So can you tell us a little bit about why that? happened or the process behind that? Well, there's a simple explanation and a more complex one. The simple explanation is people just kept knocking on our door say, hey, we need this. Yeah. Yep. This is happening everywhere. Yeah. And when we're doing counseling, this is what comes up. Yeah. doesn't matter where we're counseling, folks in the church, outside the church, somewhere hanging around the church. It just shows up everywhere. So, so that was good. the first thing. And then the second thing was, is that we're finding that counselors that were trained to be counselors weren't equipped. And yeah. they were facing this and then trying to refer it out to some community-based resources as opposed to being able to really counsel people. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, that's Yeah, that's smart. I, to me, it's such an honor to know that, you know, I know Western's not the church in the sense of a, a building. It is the church because it's a body of believers, right? Yeah. That the church would take it so seriously and that their perception would not be one of condemnation, but their perception is one of rescue and help and walking alongside, you know what I mean? So much so that they would put a certificate around it and build towards how do you minister to someone struggling? Because I I think that there's places in America, eras um, in history, when the perception was not of drugs the same way it is today. I think that the church has really advanced to understand the complexity, at least that not all of the complexity, but to know that it is complex and that there's not this meanness and attitude from some of the churches out there. So I think that's great to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we get to the place in the church where folks that have addiction issues that want to get help where they end up. And that is, I surrender. I don't know. I'm overwhelmed. Yep. And I think the church has been in the same place. We don't know what to do with this. Right. And so help. We need to figure it out because we're coming um, in touch with this. This is showing up in our in our churches more and more and more. And it's like, it's, uh, 
even though Sunday morning is great, it's not covering what we need to do. Amen. Yeah. That is so true that you'd have specialists coming in there. Uh, anyway, back to you, Brian. Yeah, Sorry no, about that. No, no, no. That's, that's, that's good. Let's just talk kind of big picture here, and we'll get into some, some, some church-specific issues here in a second. But talk to us a little bit about the prevalence of addiction. I know that's a broad subject, because my, my sense is for those that are not in the recovery community who don't have maybe relatives or loved ones who are, to their knowledge, facing uh, chemical addiction, sex addiction, et cetera, my sense is that the rest of us might underestimate its prevalence. How, how prevalent are these types of chemical, sexual, what have you, addiction challenges in our culture today? So um, that's about four different questions in one. So I'm just <laughs> You're welcome. One of them. So <laughs> first and foremost is how prevalent is is part of the issue is there's so much of addiction that's going on that is so below the surface we don't realize what's going on or right. we're trying to pretend it isn't there. Yep. Yeah. So that's that's the first part of the answer to the question. There's lots of different statistics out there in terms of the level of prevalence in terms of addiction. Um, for for instance, chemical dependency type addiction for, from anywhere from 15 to 25 percent of the population. Wow. It's just I you know when your highway wonderful highway patrolman you know stops you at the side of the road because they think you're drinking mm-hmm. and you say and they ask well how much have you had to drink and you say one drink they all t- always multiply that by three yeah uh, that's kind of how we have to look in the addiction world yep. yeah you know however many we think are out there is probably times three yeah yeah because there's so many that that it's like you said it's under the surface so the other answer that i love to give to this question is so yeah. when i have students and i teach the first addiction class that i teach them i do addiction aerobics and so i have them stand up and sit down if they know different like slang words for uh, for drugs and things like that mm-hmm. and at the end of the uh, at the end of the aerobics i always tell them okay so stand up if you've either had a loved one or somebody in a that is a very close family member that has addiction issues and i almost always get at least 90 to 100 percent yeah wow yeah. yeah you start to realize the percentage of people that this is impacting on some level is, well, like you said, extraordinarily high. Now, most of our listeners are in a suburban context. And in a suburban context, things are easier to hide. What are the most common addiction challenges you're seeing in a suburban context? So in a suburban context, this is really where addiction is flourishing, particularly Mm -hmm. substance use uh, issues, um, because there's been several different types of drugs that have been somewhat acceptable. Mm -hmm. And then because they're acceptable, they're easier to overuse. And the number one um, in that category are Mm painkillers. So opiates and different types of uh, painkillers like that are becoming rampantly abused because people start with the notion of this feels good yeah. and then they go move on to uh, I know how to make good feel better. Yeah. You know, the problem is is we're kind of a condition to accept this idea that I should have to live with no pain whatsoever. I was mm. just thinking the exact same thing. Huh. And if we try to get down to zero pain with a pill, what happens is the effect is very short-lived. It's called tolerance that we develop. And then what happens is I need more and more of the substance to get the same effect. Yep. Yeah. And since we're not wired to be totally without pain, that's not how God wired us. Just like we're not wired to be totally without anxiety, there's supposed to be some of that there. It's a trigger mechanism to let us know there's a problem that needs to be solved. Uh, wow. Just that concept yeah. right there is brilliant. Yeah. The idea that that pain-free living isn't a thing, yeah. but when you chase after that fantasy, you're going to do all sorts. You have to manufacture that ability. Yeah. And uh, when you were asking the question earlier about the prevalence and everything and kind of... I was. I remember doing. I'm a history buff, right? So I remember going back and studying like the Mesopotamians, and they're like making beer. You know, like everybody has always had an escapism. There's yeah. always been a way to kind of numb out. There's always been a way to kind of make me feel better because life is difficult. Yeah. I think that ever since the fall of mankind, life has been difficult, and I think that our ability to try to escape that, or run around that, or numb that out, or block it out, or hide from it. Because it just doesn't feel right. And I think yeah. that until we're in heaven, we don't feel right. Yeah. Something's amiss. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, you're uh, no, no, you're absolutely right about that. It's funny. I I have this memory of of years ago, back when smartphones first came out, <laughs> and I got my first smartphone. And I remember standing in line at the DMV, which is everyone's wow. favorite activity, right? And and I remember getting out my phone and just fiddling with it. I don't know. It was new. I was who know ESPN or whatever. I don't know what I was doing. And and it was it was this like bizarre realization I had where I realized, oh my gosh. I don't have to be bored anymore standing yep. in line because I have yep. this device where now I can just, I can just, like boredom, which was just a fairly part common life. part of my life is now essentially gone. I mean, and now anywhere that any of us go, a doctor's office, wherever, where folks are waiting, like the magazines are just sitting there. Why? Because we're all on our phones and, or, you know, traveling people are all on their, on their phones. What's the point? We saw Boredom it was now a thing of the past because we don't have to be bored anymore. We have something in front of us. And it's almost like you think about pain, you think about anxiety, you think about just various challenges we face, physical, emotional, what have you. There is, I think, this sense of, well, because I can medicate it, I don't have to learn to process through it anymore. And in the same way that this boredom relief has now led to all sorts of technology addiction, there's a sense in which if the goal is zero pain all the time, that that can lead to a chemical addiction. Now, those aren't perfectly analogous, but I think there's some similarity there, right? No, I think that's true. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that you talked about just reminds me of is kind of the core of a lot of what becomes a behavior turning into an addiction is that uh, one of the addiction sayings is, um, well, in AA, it's for, uh, one drink is too many, 10,000 is never enough. Hmm, it's right. this notion of, um, the next one is going to do it, yeah. and the next, and so be, we become addicted to this next new thing. Whatever yes. our drug of choice is, whether it's pornography or cocaine, it's like it's the next thing. Right. So that oh, I haven't tried it this way, and let me try it this way. Right. It's kind of and it's the uh, same thing um, in some ways, not as debilitating, sometimes more, is when we look at like uh, internet addiction or game addiction. It's like yeah. it's that next new thing. Yes, yeah. except for it does doesn't quite alter the brain chemistry like a line of cocaine. Mm -hmm. um, so that next new thing becomes so, so potent yeah. that we hijack our brain to such an extent that it can't possibly meet right. that expectation. Yeah. Right. It, and it's, and you know, uh, so just given uh, kind of our listeners a little bit of an understanding about the level of addiction. So I, I kind of look at them and go a rough way and then... Uh, Doug is going to correct <laughs> what I'm about to say, which, by the way, if anyone could see us right now in this studio, you know who the expert is. Yeah, absolutely. Visually, no question. you can tell because he looks wiser than all the rest of us. So combined, he has glasses and he has a beard. Yeah. Both of those qualify you as an expert. I'm not sure if you're saying I'm twice as old as both of you or what, but I'm not sure that's a compliment. This is, this is absolutely a compliment. Okay, so to let our listeners know, um, is you the way, the channel that I kind of see it go through is that there's one thing to be interested in something that you look and you go, oh, that's nice. Then there's a behavior to start engaging with it. Then there's it shifts into a drive where now I'm really into it. Then there's a different level called compulsion compulsion where you are not quite always driving the car. <laughs> Sometimes your body's going to press that gas pedal, whether you want to press it or not. But addiction is beyond that. That is where your body is made up a mind of its own. And it is wants to continue down that road and it will do whatever it can to keep that fed, even if it means violating some of your very core values. And so when we talk about addiction and things like that, it's not simply, well, I like to do that too. You know what I mean? No, no, no. That's not addiction. Um, because no. a lot of people go, oh my gosh, am I addicted to cooking? I love cooking. <laughs> you go, uh, <laughs> I can guarantee no. Um, I don't know anyone addicted to cooking. But you may have a real high interest in something and love to do it. You love to shop. Once all of a sudden shopping is your drug of choice. We're now getting into a totally different realm of compulsion and addiction and things like that. So what is true about that and what is false? Well, I think most of it is true. Okay, great. If not all of it. <laughs> Way to okay. go, And, you know, I think one of the things that we look at is that with addiction, you know, I referenced my gray beard. You know, back in the day, there was a, there was a Folgers commercial. And it said, you know, Folgers, it picks you up. It makes a bad day good and a good day better. And that's kind of what addiction is like. It becomes this all-encompassing thing. Doug yes. Weiss 
is a Christian psychologist that's written tons on sexual addiction, and he calls it brain cookies. I love yep. that concept. So true. That that's good. My brain doesn't, at that point, doesn't decide, doesn't judge, this is morally good, this is bad. I just want a cookie. <laughs> that's yeah. so true. You know, And mm. so that's what happens. Now, the one thing that I would add to what you said in terms of what we're looking at as a, as a genuine addiction is we used to use categories, and we still do to some extent, of abuse, like somebody is a drug abuser. Right. And or somebody is a, a drug dependent. Well, an abuser by definition means there's consequences in their right. life. So something's happening. It's impacting their social life. It's impacting their work. It's impacting their relationships at home. If they're you know a teenager, it's impacting their grades in school and different things like that. Um, and and uh, dependency means that if I don't have this thing, yes. uh, there's something wrong with me. And we mm, can yes. do dependencies with processes like sexual addiction as well as chemi- chemically. It's just that with the chemical, it's just like a straight shot to the brain, so it creates that dependency that much quicker. So anywhere between the in the continuum of abuse to dependency, we have addiction. Yes, And so part of that also adding to that definition is not only do we have to have this, but it occupies most of our day, either Mm -hmm. in planning for the behavior, engaging in the behavior, or trying to clean up the mess from the behavior. Right. You know, I can't tell you how many folks that have counseled over the days that uh, have had addiction issues. And addiction issues shows up in a lot of ways, but one of them is episodic, meaning you go on these huge binges and then yep. you don't touch it for six months. Right. And uh, these husbands would go on these binges when the wife's away. Yep. And I'd ask them, well, how much does your addiction cost? And it's like, oh, I don't know, hundreds, thousands, whatever. I say, like, no, no, you got to also count all that um, paying back when the spouse comes back. Like buying the flowers yeah, right. and the bike and the car. And yeah. all that counts too. That counts yeah. too, yeah. That's part of what's going on. And people don't realize the extent or the costs that are going into what they're doing. I think yeah. one of the most unsettling pieces about discovering what's addicting is what you said, which was how much of your day is planning for it. Because you go down an emotional trail and you're going, I can't wait to get home till I can watch sports. I can't yeah. wait till I, and it's, it's actually always running in the background yeah. or foreground of your mind <laughs> while you're at work. Yeah. It's while you're in social situations. It's while you know what I mean? It's stealing your attention and it's a longing. Yeah. And that's a cost that's a little bit more difficult to identify. It's intangible. Yeah. Like if somebody is, is clearly uh, intoxicated. Yep. Usually you can tell. Right. Right. But the person who is completely preoccupied yes. with something else. I mean, maybe they're not quite as fully present, but it's one of those ways that addiction can be damaging that is a little bit l- more difficult to notice. Well, it can bring you to places, and I think that this is where a lot of counselors and therapists find people, is it takes people to places that they never dreamed that they would go, um, to where they go, this isn't me. Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't... It's violating so many of my core values, yep. what I'm doing right now. I'm not a dishonest person, but now I'm acting dishonestly in order to hide yeah. or plan for or whatever. And when it starts to bend things about who you are, it starts to bend things that are important to you. So, for example, um, I would much rather do this than be present with my children. Yeah. When it's stealing from you in those ways, there becomes this shame, this that's, oh my gosh, who have I become? And that it trying to balance out and go, you're right, the behavior's not good. I'm not, I'm not going to affirm you in that. But also, I can't have you in a shame spiral or we can't go anywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. So how, how do, even on that question, how do we work with that type of stuff? How do you tell them in correction but not be lost in shame? Yeah. Yeah, I think shame, well, shame is a core of almost all addictions. I mean, there is a core piece of addictions is, is about shame. And paradox is that the, um, there was, um, uh, the shame cycle was coined, oh, I don't know, probably 15, 20 years ago. And part of that notion of the shame cycle was that it actually fuels the ne- next episode of acting out my addiction. Yes. Hmm. And so... Uh, This is where I think uh, the church can be so profoundly helpful in helping folks 
uh, mitigate that shame because that is such a critical part. If I don't take care of the shame, I'm not going to take care of the addiction. That's the driver behind the net, the cycle completing itself. Because I try, I try, I try. It, when we look at that cycle, we look at this withholding. I'm trying, I'm trying my best to try to not do this on my own power. Yeah. Um, and then I give up. I can't do it, and so I totally let go, and then I binge. Hmm. Um, and then the shame feeds that cycle by saying. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. Somebody told me I'm not good enough because let's face it, there's consequences to our yep. behavior, yeah. uh, wages of sin, you know, and yep. so they, some of that is relational. And so they get those shame messages and they go, well, you're right. I'm not good enough. I might as well go act out again. Absolutely. Yeah. The other simple way that it comes down, I think it was just interlaced into everything you said is, hey, I want to do something to make me feel better because I don't feel good. Yeah. And then after I'm done, I don't feel good because I just did something. Now I got to f- cover that too, right? And it just keeps that spiral going. Yeah, it's the essence it's, of a spiral. Right? Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so with that, I mean, you said the church can be so profoundly helpful, and I agree. But at the same time, we've got our own sort of issues in church world that we're that that, that we encounter the 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 sort of unspoken pressure to appear put together and things of that nature. These are issues as old as as old as time. How in the church world can we encourage those who are struggling with addiction, those who are beginning to notice that maybe they're having some addictive tendencies? Because my sense is most people don't seek help until they're pretty far gone. How can we encourage more honesty about some of these challenges so that we can better support and provide help? Well, first of all, I think we have to be honest and say it's here. Yep. Yeah. So um, that right. it isn't out there, that it's in here. Yeah. And in all, in all its forms, you know, we tend to love to compartmentalize just like addicts love to compartmentalize. If sure. they can compartmentalize, this doesn't count. This isn't part of my normal experience, which is right. how we can do this thing yeah. as Christians having addictions because they, well, this doesn't count. This is a separate thing. Yep. So I think we do this in a larger body, and so we have to get away from that and go. Guess what? It ex- exists both in the process level. I'm, I'm, you know, in the church we can say, hey, I, I, I'm cool with admitting that I spend too many times going to the buffet. Right? right. That's cool. That's all yeah, good. That's acceptable. But but it's hard to believe that actually <laughs> substances are used to uh, an extent that um, uh, is not helpful, yeah. is harmful, yeah. and uh, in the church. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, one of the things that brings that to the fore, and I think it's going to be much more of an issue in the next decade is the legalization issue Mm -hmm. is with that there's become this notions of things that what are and what are not acceptable. Yeah. The um, bottom line is not all of us are holy because we want to be holy. (laughs) There are sometimes there are limits or boundaries that are put up by external factors, right? So laws, Um, sometimes it's your parents, (laughs) right? Um, And they they Sometimes that's the same thing. Sometimes the same thing. (laughs) And they create barriers that um, even peer pressure sometimes of saying, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to be seen as that. And so we don't tend to try certain things. One of those barriers is legal and illegal. And when that is now shifted and that barrier is slid away, right? So for example, uh, I grew up and I have never tried marijuana. And I would say that I don't think I didn't do it because it was illegal. But I think that the fear of being caught for something is still a factor. So it was not a part of my life. Now, all of a sudden, in California and a couple other states as well, that now has been slid out of the way. That is no longer a barrier. It's no longer a consequence, right? So I don't have to worry about getting caught for it. I don't have to worry about paying a penalty or a consequence. Now, all of a sudden, you have to have a different factor of why you're not doing it. Right? right. And so this legalization now you could you would know this better than I, but I heard um, recently that in addition to marijuana, one of the other things that are they're really trying to legalize is mushrooms because that is another natural substance. And so they're trying to link that same thing. Now, now a mushroom is a hallucinogenic. That's a, that's a, even a whole different category. But once again, I think that we all have reasons why we don't do what we call bad things. And some of those for people are getting busted, yeah. the, the fear of getting busted. When there yeah. is no fear of getting busted, 
Yeah. Now, I have to say that this whole legalization of marijuana, we, and we've talked about it, I think, yeah. on this on this podcast in the past. But I think that this whole legalization thing gets so messy, and it's it, it's because, like for example, it is a little odd that we are um, that marijuana was illegal in a place like America that drinks so much. <laughs> it's it kind of seems a little funny where we yeah. pick and choose what we call illegal, and yeah. you go, well, it's not. We have a lot of mind altering stuff going on. <laughs> but anyway, I didn't want to take yeah. that all up. What in, were your thoughts, Brian? In what ways? Well, Doug, I want to get to you. I mean, you said that we were talking off air. You said that you get the questions regarding legalization all the time. Uh, what are what are some of the issues surrounding legalization, and how? Uh, what are some ways that that is affecting addiction recovery, all of that culturally? Well, it it changes two things. It changes the bar certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always been this um, false bar about soft drugs and hard drugs. Right. So this notion of soft drugs are somehow okay. Okay. And hard drugs, no, that's not okay. Okay. And we define that all kinds of different ways in terms of legalization is one of them. Excess is another one. All kinds of different ways. Yeah. But it changes the playing field um, even though marijuana might be considered a soft drug, right. it changes the playing field in terms of what has become acceptable as a culture and I think also within the church as a subculture. Hmm. That now folks, even though a teenager is still illegal by the state and by the feds, you can't do this, folks, kids, but um, it it changes the, the dynamic, the structure, the the... How we think about things. It's kind and of how I, we talk about it. Yeah, I love Francis Schaeffer. Yeah. I've always loved Francis Schaeffer. And, you know, he yeah. talks about going below, below the line mm. and it, it invites us below the line. Yeah. And so now things are fair game that weren't fair game before. And now there's things that are quote unquote normal behavior for kids in youth group that wasn't quote unquote normal behavior before. Right. Mm. Interesting. So this. I'm trying to put put my question together in my head here. So how does legalization then, I mean, because you talk about these are now normal, more normal behaviors. How do the, the, all of these changes regarding legalization, marijuana is one of them. I mean, and who knows what else is coming down the pipe. I mean, how does that change the way that we need to even be talking about these issues in church, particularly to our young people, but just even in general? Yeah. So I think the issue is, you know, we can get so caught up in what the thing is. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, this, that, or the other. Yeah. Um, I love uh, John Daly, is late John Daly, who used to be very, very prevalent in the recovery community here locally. He wrote a book um, regarding uh, substance use with teens, and he talks about, well, we need to get away from the notion of these different substances. It's about being addicted, addicted to intoxication. Hmm. Yeah, and so it's about the, this notion of intoxication of this mind altered state yeah. that is my go to state yeah. um, uh, for feeling whatever that might be. But and with the other thing with addiction that we tend to miss is that sometimes we focus on the pain. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, addiction covers the pain? But that's one of three things that that why people become addicted. One is about pain, and and certainly it's more than half. But there's also folks that have great experiences in their life. Things feel really good and they want good to feel better. Mm, Yeah. Um, I think that's why we see this a lot in our entertainment world, because they're having these peak experiences by performing on yeah. a stage that there's a, there's a rush in that that's nothing like that. Yeah. And so they want that. They want it to be even more. Yeah. And then the third level is that the, there, there are folks out there, um, maybe the remnants of the 60s, I don't know, <laughs> but that want to be able to expand their consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's that notion of, like, and these are the artistic folks that want to, you know, they they're trying to find the lost chord. I think mm. it's stage lost for a reason. Oh, but anyway, <laughs> they're, like, they're trying to find this this next level. And yeah. so this is the thing where the hallucinogenics are, we have to be careful with our our creative types because yeah. they're going to be drawn to those kind of things. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, I would imagine that your approach to providing care for a person would be different based on which of those three kind of ideas is is sort of underneath their addiction yeah it's just like for those that are you know to the making that high feel better yeah 
there is something about us that good, bad, or indifferent. There's some folks that need more adrenaline in their world. Yeah. Yep. You know, they're the bungee jumpers in the world. God bless yep. them. It'll never be me. <laughs> um, but they need that to just kind of uh, keep the motor running for yeah. them. And to say, oh, don't have that is not realistic. Right. To say, let's not do this in a way that's going to cause you and your family and everybody else in your world harm is a good idea. Right. Well, and I think that's that is that's helpful to me, and I, and I think that that could be helpful to, to our listeners, is the idea of, I think, the, the, the adrenaline addict example. Because I think I'm like a high-functioning adrenaline addict in that, it, like, I care a lot <laughs> about safety and being careful, but I also... Like, I, you know, I love the rush. I love the yeah. rush of new experiences. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've been skydiving and never bungee jumped, would love to. But, you know, yeah. all that stuff is really exciting right. to me. Right? Right. I don't drive a motorcycle because yeah. of the gas mileage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, well, but there are other things, too, where it's like I have no desire to motorcycle ride because I feel like I would crash and it would not be good. But anyway, here's my point. My point is uh, like, like you can go to somebody who's maybe the, the major adrenaline addict and say, well, why don't you just not, not do this? Well, we're sort of projecting ourselves onto them yes. at that point where you're like, well, you're just like me, aren't you? And it's like, well, no, you're not. I'm not. So then instead of saying, okay, how do we not do this? Instead, it's okay. How do we, how do we redirect this? How do we, how do we make that? Now there are certain things where it's like, Hey, we don't want to redirect your massive cocaine use to a healthy amount of cocaine use. Like that's, <laughs> that's not a thing, but to be able to say with a lot of these mindsets, it's like, okay, how can we redirect this mindset in a way that's not going to cause a lot of damage that's different than just saying well why don't you just not be that way a couple thoughts on that one is um we are all very different so when you were talking about adrenaline junkies i think they operate in general at a lower excitement level than everybody else and they need a little juice to get them there I, as a dude with panic disorder, I'm pretty well hyped most of the time. I don't need to jump out of a plane to think I'm going to die. I can think I'm going to die today right here in the seat. And so I don't need more hype, right? Um, And so, but for them, they're saying, listen, for me to feel some of the things that you feel, I need some help with that. And because my level is lower, I can go to an extreme place and it just gets me where you're at. And you know what I'm saying? So not everybody is the same. We think, well, if I was to do that, that'd be crazy. Well, yeah, it would be for you, but you don't have the same chemical makeup that I do, right? The other thing that I think that is fascinating, where you were talking about, I think it gets a little bit worse in the next generation, is that when you talk about from one, the desire to go from good to better, our world keeps opening up and telling you that there is even better. So, for example, it wasn't very likely for someone to be a movie star when movies were pretty new. There was a select few. Now you have these shocking movie stars coming out on YouTube, and they're not even going through the standard channels, and they're getting this euphoria of fame so rapidly. Now, before, you used to wonder what that actor Rock Hudson was like behind the scenes. Now it's shoved in your face in every television show. They have mansions you don't have. They have this stuff, and you can see everything about their lifestyle. Now, of course, it's not the real. (laughs) It's the fake. But now people are going, there is another level of euphoria. How come they get to be there and I don't? I got to go chase after that. So I think we're ratcheting up the euphoric possibilities. Yeah. To what extent are you seeing that? Because I I think Lance is right about that. I mean, I I think that that does feed into a lot of this. Uh, What's your experience in that regard? Um, Well, I think there's um, a couple of different things. One is that there's folks that have that experience that they need more. But then there's other folks that go on. They're just inundated with this. They're seeing the deluge of information, uh, the Facebook that somebody else's experience is having, Facebook envy, and they're going, I I don't measure up, and so they're actually trying to tune out with that. And so they're going, okay, I can't measure up here, so maybe I can do this other thing, and either I don't have to think about measuring up, or I do measure up. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about how how do we provide support in, in the church realm. I mean, you've talked about how the church can be a great resource in terms of kind of uh, reversing or, or getting rid of this shame component. In your experience, what are some ways that the Christian community, the church community is, is kind of getting it wrong when it comes to caring for those with, with addiction? And then how can we, how can we make some 
some practical improvements? Um, well, first of all, I think there's some ways that the church is getting it really right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's some there's some programs out there, you know, that like Celebrate Recovery is a great example. Yep. That I think they're getting it right. They're yeah. doing things where, again, what they're doing first and foremost, they're not paying attention to anything else until they take care of their shame. It's like you're here. We're we're all broken here. We're all trying to figure it out. Yeah. And so they're doing that right. Um. And I think there's a lot of different church ministries that are modeled after that that aren't the same thing. That they've got the right idea. Yeah. Yep. Um. So I think that's absolutely awesome. That's great. How we're uh, maybe at times doing it wrong mm-hmm. is looking at um the notion, Brian, that you were, were talking about earlier is just well, just stop it. Yeah. Well, you know, right. if we just stop it, we'll be just fine. <laughs> you know, it's important to realize, you know, uh, one of the primary theories of how we treat addiction looks at what are the needs that are trying to be met. That's right. Mm-hmm. And if we get at, and this is where the I think the church can be incredibly powerful in helping folks with addiction, yeah. is we if we get at the needs, because we know Christ meets those needs, mm-hmm. if we get at those needs, then we've got a really good shot at helping these folks find another alternative in their life. Yeah. For example, the um, when we look at this, the number one need is love and belonging. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, if these folks can come in and say, you know, if we can come in and say, you know what, in this community, regardless of what happens, I'm I'm loved and yeah. I belong here. Yeah. That is tremendous. You know, the second one is safety that we feel safe. Yeah. And in some of our communities, we don't feel safe. And I think as a Christian community, we can help that. But also th- as those people join into that Christian community that they feel safe, they're going to start getting those needs met that we're getting met in other ways. Yeah. Man, you know, one, so of the, one of the dangers um, about this whole idea of just stop it, um, first of all, it's, it's impossible. Um, in the master's mind, when I wrote it, I talked about that in any time you pull out something, you create a void. Something's always going to backfill the void because the void until the void's addressed. And so the better way is to force out by pressing in something healthier to fill it up so that the gap isn't there anymore. Because as long as there's that hole, it's going to pull stuff into it. And so the, the idea of can I have an identity or a location or a loving and belonging, can I have a place where I, I'm okay here, then the craving is not so great. Now, there are times where, in you know, as whether it's brain cookies or whatever, I always look at it in terms of sometimes it's junk food, sometimes it's a pacifier. You know what I mean? Like a little baby, if you ever take away their pacifier, they're going to freak out on you. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because that is a self-soothing technique. And now sometimes you would go, you need to grow up and learn to self-soothe in a healthier way than a pacifier. You're 42 years old. You know what I mean? <laughs> that kind of stuff. So, yeah, sometimes there is some tough love in, in, in helping to develop but we have to be very careful why they're needing self-soothing in the first place. If you neglect the core need, we have a whole host of problems. Because usually if somebody gets busted for an addiction, they got two choices. Try to address the addiction or find one that people can't see so quickly. You know what I mean? You just go into another one. Right. I, I remember the um, the first time somebody pointed out that um, at all the old AA meetings – Everybody was smoking. <laughs> and it was, you know, I mean, it's one of those, or the, right. there's always coffee. You right. know what I mean? It's there's right. some other stimulant that's taking that place. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Um, you know, the other thing I just want to ahead. mention yeah, is please. because I, we, we tend to sometimes forget it, is that one of the other needs, again, it's not as big a priority as love and belonging or safety, yeah. but one of the other needs is fun. Yeah. And sure. so folks that have gotten, so true. Caught in a compulsive behavior, an addictive behavior, they forgot how to have fun in any other way. Yes. Mm. Wow. And yep. I, th- I think uh, in the church, we can we can have fun, right, once yep. in a while? Oh, for <laughs> right? sure. I think. So occasionally. I, occasionally. And, but, I mean, <laughs> emphasis on fun in the church yeah. is a really attractant because they, ju- they don't, they forgot the skill. Yeah. And I love... I love being in a community where, as a church, we can kind of make fun of ourselves a little hey, bit and not take man. ourselves so seriously. Yeah, um, man, it's just it is just like salve on the wound for folks. Yeah, you know? no, I think now that's to me true. that's particularly very important, and yeah. there's a couple different reasons why. Uh, so, first of all, the church has not historically been known as fun, yep. and I think a lot of people avoid it for that very reason. Yep. They're afraid that it's not fun, and that the idea is you either choose Jesus or fun. 
Yeah. You understand? I mean, that's been all that traction to sin where, yeah. you know, for a lot of the kids, well, you can be bored here or you can go have fun over in, you know, Sin City. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that that's a mistake. God designed in festivals and fun into his design of community. Right. And he goes, no, 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 I need you full. I need you full here, laughing, joking, joyful, because we are complete here. We don't need that which should be like a synthetic version of what should have been legit. But here's why this is so important to me. There are certain personalities. I'm a big fan of personality types, uh, thing, you know, conversations. And I go old school, sanguine, melancholy, phlegmatic, you know, that, that kind of stuff that came out a long time ago. And I am a sanguine. Mm-hmm. And the number one need for sanguines is to have fun. Mm-hmm. And everybody says, well, everyone wants to have fun. And I go, you don't understand. If you're a sanguine, without fun, you die inside. And when you start dying inside, you will go to whatever it takes to get that fun back. And it will lead you into some pretty dark areas. So once again, yeah. every personality has different um, temptations into addiction. But for a sanguine, fun is a big deal. Yeah, right. I'm not saying you have to fix it every time, but you know, the number one thing that teenagers say when when they've got like every electronic device, they've got <laughs> this and then the other. Hey, what are you doing? I don't know. I'm bored. There's nothing to do. I'm bored. Nothing to do. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it was that that same idea that you brought up that I don't know another way to have fun. Um, so, for example, I remember um, you know I had grown up around a very very conservative mom who's like anti-alcohol, right? I am not anti-alcohol, but she she is. And so I was never around it. And I remember the first time I started with my wife going out with other couples, and every time we would go to couples' house, there was tons of alcohol. And it just seemed so odd to me. I was like, what? Okay, I guess we all can't hang out and talk unless there's a bottle, three bottles of wine. That's <laughs> weird. But I started noticing a pattern, and the pattern was that was associated with fun. Mm-hmm. We don't have fun without it. And there are certain places where you can bump up and say, we don't have a fun party without, and there's substances on the table. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. so you forget, like um, we uh, were recently, uh, excuse me, we're very quickly here taking our kids to camp, yeah. camp, yeah. Hume Lake. It's coming up. And at Hume Lake, there's no cell reception. And it's so weird <laughs> to go through and see kids playing uh, playing card games. Yeah. They're yep. all out together and there's no phones. Yep. And it is the most bizarre thing. Yep. <laughs> and what's funny is there was a time when there wasn't cell phones. Right. And we had fun. That's just what we did. And you go, but I've forgotten how to have fun without my phone. Yep. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And s- similar, forgotten how to have fun without my substance, without you know, Absolutely. whatever else. It's funny, just <laughs> briefly. So we're coming off of, we had our kids camp this last week, Camp Kids Away. And, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds of kids here and hundreds of volunteers. It was a great time and all that. And, and I love camp week uh, for a lot of reasons. Just there's tons of energy and, and fun around campus, of course, with all the, the children and the volunteers and whatnot. But but I love, I never really have like a specific job at Camp Kids Way. I'm just sort of like the hype man and I just get to go around and high five kids and have a good time and whatever. And this is what was funny is this year, the theme was food fight. And our kids department <laughs> had all these weird sunglasses that had different like foods on them, like a hamburger and fries and like cupcakes and ice cream and all this other stuff. And what I would do is I would just go to where the, ki- the the glasses were and I would just put on different pairs of glasses and wear them around. And like one day I did my hair in a mohawk and like one of my sons was in like a red group. So they had like red hair stuff. So I put red stuff in my hair and I'm just being silly and having a good time. Amen. One day I got pied in the face and all of this other stuff. And it was so funny to me. Like I got tons of comments on these glasses and everything else. And a lot of people really enjoyed it. I got a lot of weird looks too. Oh yeah. Not like, not like disrespectful, but just people that were almost like, Oh wait, you're, you're a pastor and you're, yeah. you're, you're <laughs> yes. being silly. You're doing this. And like, that is such a normal part of my personality. Like, sure. I'll look silly. I'll look stupid, whatever. But I think just even, even, and I was saying this to a guy on our security team, I said to present this side of myself <laughs> to yeah. our kids, first of all, and to the hundreds of volunteers that are here. Yeah. Like, I think there's a ministry benefit here oh, it's oh, huge. to just be like, Hey, look, we're, you know, I mean, and I try to, you know, you too, Lance, I mean, try to keep things light and fun when oh, we're yeah. preaching and everything else, but it's just different to show, okay, there's a fun side here and there are ways to have fun in the church context that, 
you know, can be healthy and enjoyable. So I just, it was just a funny experience for me. Yeah. I, I know that uh, we're probably wrapping up time here yeah. uh, real soon, but I do I do want to draw spin back to a legalization discussion. Whoops, yeah. I just threw my pen on the ground. Um, but uh, a legalization conversation about how drug users are observed. Yeah, when something is illegal, and once again, we're kind of making up what's illegal and illegal. It's not like we checked with God and asked his opinion. <laughs> we just randomly say, well, this drug gets this type of sentence, this drug gets yep. this, you know, oh, this yeah. one's synthetic and this one's natural, as if that makes any difference. Right. But anyway, um, in that, one of the concerns that I have always had is how people are viewed. Yeah, Because to me, I have such a heart for people that when people are involved in something, we're not talking about a war on drugs. We're talking about a war on people. And and my concerns start when, when you have hearts involved. So you go, all right, so somebody is doing drugs for whatever reason, and then you put them in a cage. You put Like, how exactly did that just fix yeah. the problem? Now, I understand that if you go, well, actually, I'm putting you in a cage because you're the one giving all the drugs to the children. Now I have to go, your behavior, you know what you're doing, we're not doing that. You need to go away. Right. But if you're saying, I'm so lost in myself, I'm so con- I'm now in a cage, and it's not rehab, it's cage. That's just a weird thing. And, and the part that messes with my head is that there's a bunch of people that turn their nose down at people that did marijuana because it was illegal. Yeah. And they had this attitude of superiority of going, oh, you're a drug user. Now, all of a sudden, it's legal. So now, all of a sudden, there is no, that's not one of those. And you go, oh, wait, now you're just my neighbor. <laughs> like like a person's identity just flip-flopped based on a legal stance. Right. That really bothers me. And so I just would love to, as the church, never lose that there are people behind all of these issues you don't simply say it's a drug user it's a person that is in battled with drugs right and i'm not trying to say that nobody needs accountability and i'm not i'm not saying any of that sure. stuff i'm merely saying there's a reason why they're in it and yes they may have just made bad decisions yeah. all right they're still a human being and i don't think we just get to write people off in a stereotypical fashion because they struggle with something different than us that's yeah. all I'm trying to say. Well, and, and, and Doug, I'd like to get your thoughts on this briefly. I mean, you talk about uh, cage versus rehabilitation. I mean, if, if the goal is truly that, rehabilitation, it would seem to me that just pure criminalization, where we criminalize a drug offender in the same way that we would a violent criminal or something to that effect, it seems like that would not be that effective. That instead, and to Lance's point, we're not saying that there's no accountability, but that the goal would be more the rehab side of things than just the criminalization side of things. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Or what's even, I don't even know what discussions are going on in either the academic world or anything else around this issue of, okay, how do we actually help <laughs> drug offenders as opposed to just putting them in prison? Right. Well, you know, back in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. um, uh, the one number one crime that people had was poverty. And so because they were impoverished, they were put in prison. That helps poverty quite a bit as well, right? <laughs> kind of gets them off the uh, streets, right? Yeah, it gets them off the streets, but it doesn't really help doesn't their condition. Fix anything. Right. Um, and I, it's a tough question. I really think yeah. it's a tough question because we, you know, we want to be protected. We want our rights to be protected. We want our property to be protected. Um, and yet the, the notion of just locking somebody up isn't going to do it. We need to really look at what is it that people, again, trying to meet their needs, how do we go about meeting their needs as well as protecting the community? I think it's a both and, it's not an either or. Absolutely. And so as the church... The um, you know, the last I heard the church, you know, since the you know Inquisition, we weren't into policing people. Uh, we're into helping people 
with compassion move towards a better relationship and yeah. and preferably a relationship with Christ, right? right. Yep. And so we should be. That's where we want to head with folks. We 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 do want to support those that are you know providing the the help and the structures of our community to keep them from anarchy. But right. we also want to and on a one on one basis, we're di- we're we're just fellow you know sinners you know looking for manna. Sure. We're just yep. trying to figure out where the next. Uh, you know where the next um, set of a uh, uh, bit of grace comes from for yeah. all of us, yeah. and I and to extend that grace to anybody and everybody, regardless of as they say in celebrate recovery, their hurt habit or hang up. Right. No, yep. that's good. As we kind of start to wrap this up here, just kind of my last question, and we could probably do a whole episode on <laughs> this last question. But in terms of resources. Because I talk to people, I know Lance talks to people, I'm sure you talk to plenty of people who who come to you and say something to the effect of, I've got a loved one who's dealing with XYZ addiction challenge, what do I do? Uh, what are some resources you can recommend or, or, or practices you can recommend to help those who have a loved one in sort of the addiction world, the recovery world, how can they best support those people? Yeah, Brian, thanks for inviting me back for that next hour because that's what it's going to take to to deal with that one. So three things, I think, first of all. First is that um, don't turn a blind eye. Don't Mm. pretend that somehow if I don't do anything, it's going to go away. That is absolutely not the truth. Um, Two, and this is the hard part, what tough love really looks like in terms of those enabling behaviors. And again, this could be a whole hour, but um, it's it's supporting the person without supporting the behavior and having to set limits. Okay, this is what is acceptable and this is an acceptable, say, in my house if this is somebody that's a loved one, a teenager or an adult. Um, and then the third is not, um, you know, in the AA they talk about it being a program of attraction, yeah. not compulsion. And so it's a notion of you're you're inviting, you're having resources at your disposal. Both, you know, we can look at resources like Celebrate Recovery, and it doesn't hurt to go alongside with them, you know, yeah. and just go, hey. I'm just going to check it out just like you are. Um, but having those resources available, if somebody goes, you know what, in a moment of clarity, I think I'm having a problem with this. And they w- may only acknowledge that for a half hour or 45 minutes, <laughs> but I got this resource of available to me um, when that opportunity arises. So being prepared to provide that support yeah. when the chance arises. Yeah. No, that's good. Well, and like you said, I mean, you said a minute ago, I mean, the the church is doing a lot of stuff right in terms of celebrate recovery, in terms of other other programs. That there are opportunities there for us to get underneath the shame spiral, to stop all of that, and then to get folks in environments where that can be addressed, and then ultimately the addictive behaviors can be addressed as well in a healthy manner. Yeah. So good. Well, thank you, sir. We really appreciate your time today. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, enjoyed your insight. Thank you to you, Lance, as you well. Bet. Thanks, Brian. for uh, Yeah, thanks for being with us. And thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, hope you enjoyed the conversation. Hope that this gave you some insight into addiction and recovery. And, and for those that, are, uh, that have loved ones who are struggling, hopefully just some resourcing to be able to help you uh, come alongside them in a healthy and productive manner. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you in two weeks with another episode of Engaging Culture. Thank you for listening to Engaging Culture, a podcast by Bridgeway Christian Church. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. Music is used under the Creative Commons license and is provided by Dexter Britton.